Welcome to Policy Matters. My name is Franz Boucher. And I'm Matt Dixon. And today we're joined by Dr. Rachel Aldred from the University of Westminster. Rachel is a reader in transport, and her research focuses on different modes of transport, especially cycling, and also on health-related topics such as injury risk during travel. Her research is a combination of a range of different methodologies that seek to identify a new narrative around mobility behavior and how such behavior can be influenced. Thank you for coming, Rachel. In this series of Policy Matters, we've been talking to a lot of economists about a range of different topics that may not initially seem like a topic that economists are actively engaged in. So far, we've discussed topics such as healthcare, crime, sports, and even happiness. Now, I know, because we work at the same institution, that you're not an economist and you're not in my department. So I guess my first question to you is, how do you see yourself exactly? Your research seems to be on a lot of boundaries that are potentially economic, sociology, public policy, health, maybe even engineering. So what kind of discipline are you in? Well, my background is actually qualitative sociology, but one of the things that attracts me about transport is that it is very multidisciplinary. It has people from a range of backgrounds, qual, quant, it's got modelling, and it also interfaces with engineering, economics and so on. So I do see my work as very multidisciplinary. I try and follow questions I'm interested in and then pick up and learn new methods uh, depending on what I need to do. So cycling is clearly a research passion of yours. Uh, I had a look at your CV and your, your, your research publication, and you have a huge amount of articles that have the word cycling in them. So I know that Matt's a big fan of cycling. He always tells me about this new bike he bought recently. Yep. And I'm also a fan of cycling, but I actually grew up in the Netherlands, uh, where for a very long time, the bicycle was my principal mode of transport. So I guess my initial naive sort of layman question here is, what kind of research is needed on cycling in the UK? Well, I guess what got me into it was the fact that from pretty much from the early 90s, government had agreed, policy had agreed that more cycling would be a good thing. So this was when this was around in about in 2008 or so. So it'd been like for 25 years. It was this is a good thing. We need more cycling. And what had happened? We'd completely failed to deliver more cycling. So I was really interested. And I thought the answers to the questions were probably not just around engineering. They were also kind of sociological, cultural, political things that I could do something about. So it's interesting that you talk about the kind of cultural issues, because uh, I know some of your uh, research has been looking at a need for a kind of change in the way we view cycling. So rather than just something that individuals do um, to something that's part of the transport system, and it's not something that you have to be kind of fully done up in the lycra for. Um, speaking as someone who is, as, as Franz mentioned, uh, I'm a bit into cycling and, and you know, the full on um, middle aged man in lycra uh, look. So I know my kids in particular would be pleased if uh, there's a cultural shift towards we just wear our normal clothes and we go cycling. Yeah, um, you know, we did used to have that. It's um, in this country. One thing that's really interesting is that in 1952, say a quarter of trips were by bike. We did have a mass cycling culture like the Netherlands, like other countries. But within 20 years, we'd effectively abolished it with the rise of the car. Um, walking and cycling declined precipitously and we lost that cycling culture. And it's so important to get it back. Cycling has become seen as something that, you know, maybe you do if you have no choice. You don't have any other modes of transport. So, uh, you know, maybe for children or people who are a low income or it's seen as something that's a lifestyle choice often for those who maybe have disposable income to spare and go out on a Sunday and that kind of thing and really those you know th those kinds of cyclists will exist and they would exist in different places but what we've lost is that mass cycling culture where it's something for everyone. 
So I guess you mentioned a cycling culture, and uh, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, I think one can assume that's sort of the gold standard for cycling culture around the world. Possibly it's the Netherlands. I grew up in the Netherlands. I was there for many years of my life. Uh, cycling was a major part of my life, certainly until the age of 18. I cycled absolutely everywhere, no matter the weather. And uh, it just allowed a young person like myself just to get to certain things, you know, travel significant distances and not take the bus. In fact, most of the time, the bicycle was much faster than taking the bus. And one of the big culture shocks I experienced when I came over from the Netherlands to here was, amongst many things, the sort of complete lack of cycling culture. Having been used to cycling everywhere, uh, that really wasn't a thing up here. So to me, still, it feels unsafe, it feels dangerous, it feels difficult to cycle in the UK, especially in London. Again, my comparison is always the Netherlands. So uh, to me, we're still very far away here to where I would like to be and where I feel safe cycling. Uh, now, I know there's something called the Mini Hollands program, which you've analyzed in some of your recent work. So can you tell us a little bit about what this Mini Hollands program is? Yes, I can. But first of all, I guess just to say something about what you were your, your lead up, because when I talk about the lack of cycling culture, I would say I think that is primarily expressed in planning, in infrastructure and in policy. You know, we need it's not a question of changing individual people's minds. It's a question of a mindset um, shift in the planning system, in the policy system and among decision makers so that we do create the kind of better cycling environments that you find in the Netherlands and in some other European countries. And the Netherlands has been an inspiration. Um, to a lot of um, planners, a lot of advocates for cycling um, here and is seen as the gold standard. And that's why this the programme, the Mini Hollands, was, was named in that way. So I'll just say something about the, the programme. So one of the issues in London has been that we have seen a big rise in cycling at certain times in certain places. So predominantly, say, on central London bridges at 8.30 in the morning, um, some of those bridges, half the traffic going over the bridge is bikes. It looks amazing. But then if you go out and look in outer London, um, then you will see very few bikes and it's spatially very unequal and also socially as well. So we, we, we have um, a big increase in cycling, but only for some people, only in some places. And this is why the Mini Hollands programme is interesting and important, because it targets suburban outer London. It's not Hackney, it's not Camden, it's not Westminster. Um, and the programme was um, first thought up in 2013. And the idea was to give three outer London boroughs a significant amount of money that they could create kind of Dutch standard or, or near their infrastructure um, in parts of their borough. So there's a big competition. Outer London boroughs suddenly got really quite interested in cycling because there was suddenly a large amount of money attached money. to it. And that's how to get cash-strapped local authorities interested is to wave some money at them. Um, and it's also a, a reason we, you know, it's five to six years of funding. It's not just one or two years, which means you can't really get anything done. So nearly all boroughs, outer London boroughs, put in plans and said, this is the kind of thing we want to do. It raised their expectations because they knew they would have like £20 a head plus to do stuff, which is much more than we traditionally spent on cycling in this country. And um, Enfield, Kingston and Waltham Forest were announced as successful. Um, and since then, really, stuff started in earnest around 2016 and is ongoing to 2021. So the programme is still underway, but it involves um, creating really transformative change for walking and cycling. So it's become more focused around both modes, walking and cycling. Mm. 
Um, and I think Walton Forest, as the most advanced, probably gives a flavour of the kind of things. Um, and if people are interested, I recommend they go and visit. Um, there's some really interesting changes that they've done. So there's some kind of big ticket cycle routes where they've created high quality Dutch style um, infrastructure in many places. Um, and they've um, improved walking environments and crossings and so on. But also what they've done is in neighbourhoods, this is something that's often done in the Netherlands but maybe isn't um, talked about so much here, is um, filtering neighbourhoods to get rid of through motor traffic. So in London, one of the big problems we have for cycling is not just that the main roads are hostile, which they are, but also that a lot of neighbourhoods, people cut through them in cars as a way of avoiding the main roads. So it's often... Like rat runs of yes. cars hurtling down and yeah, makes it difficult. It is. So it's it's more motor traffic. Often it's going at inappropriate speeds. And it's also, I think there's an interesting argument that people behave, I'd like to see this research, but that people, if they're driving in their own street they, or neighbourhood, they may be a bit more careful because their mm. kids or their neighbour's kids might be there. Yeah. But if you're cutting through someone else's neighbourhood, you maybe don't behave as carefully. So the Mini Hollands programme is trying to both create um, better quality cycle tracks on main roads, better crossings for pedestrians on main roads, but also often to calm these neighbourhoods and to turn them into places. And Walton Forest, they've done this through a lot of public realm, you know, because you can calm neighbourhoods very cheaply. You can put in bollards, but it's not that pretty. <laughs> so they've put in pocket parks where people can sit down, can play games, can, you know, they, they've made it look nice. Oh, sounds nice. Let's <laughs> have a look. You've been kind of evaluating that program now and looking at, okay, what have been uh, the results of putting in these kind of measures and this better infrastructure and how that's impacted not just on cycling and, and I guess, pedestrian uh, traffic, but also about views of cycling. Uh, what, have, what have you found? Yep. Well, um, one of the most exciting findings, of course, that, he, that early on, just after one year, um, we were finding a measurable increase in active travel, walking and cycling, mostly walking. Maybe not surprising because um, some of the stuff they did first was calming neighbourhoods, making them more um, friendly, less traffic and so on. So um, more walking and cycling around 40 to 45 minutes a week for people who are living in these intervention um, areas. But also that people were noticing that things were changing. So we also recorded change in people's attitudes to the local environment and people were noticing that things had improved in terms of cycle routes being there so that that kind of backs up the increase in active travel that people were noticing things were changing um, I should say this is um, a longitudinal study we're going back to the same people each year and we're comparing them to a control group so it's quite a rigorous method um, because you've got another group that you're comparing them to um, these programs are quite controversial and the survey also highlights that that there are quite mixed views on these changes there are people who um, are opposed to restricting car access in neighbourhoods, for instance. Um, but we can see that there is measurable change and that these programmes are leading to the kind of change that um, they're aspiring to. The other thing that we found that was interesting um, that came out of the second year's results was that in those neighbourhoods that had had a lot of motor traffic removed, we're now seeing a decline in car use by people living there. So around 20% decline in car use in the past week. So that's positive too, because Transport for London are, are keen to get more people walking and cycling, but they would also like to see a decline in driving. So we're starting to see that. I think that's very interesting what you're saying, there, that, that the effects are quite so immediate. You were saying that this is still continuing until 2021. So there's more development, more money going into the infrastructure, but already we're seeing quite noticeable effects. And often when you see policy treatments happening, you know, there might be quite delayed effects. So, you know, you see nothing in the first year or the second year. And then, you know, over many, many years, you can see perhaps a marginal change happening here. But here you're saying already there's 
quite something strong going on. I think so. And I think that actually surprised me. I was ready to say to Transport for London, who funded the study after one year, well, I didn't really expect to find anything. So that's why we didn't find anything. So to see that, I mean, that is in the what we call the high dose areas where stuff had actually gone in on the ground. So we are seeing that link. But I think it also says that you do need to spend a serious amount of money because often in this country, what we've done in the past is spent like literally pennies per person on cycling and put a few signs up on a footway and not seen anything. But actually, if you do something transformative, then you do see those cultures shift um, quite quickly. And so thinking about that in terms of going forward and the feasibility of trying to roll out this sort of kind of mini Holland's uh, programme in other London boroughs and maybe other you know cities around the country, it sounds like there are positive benefits in reduced um, emissions from cars, reduced transport use, health um, effects potentially from people walking more, cycling more. So bundling all these things together, given the cost, it sounds like this would be a, a a good policy initiative because it's it's ticking quite a few boxes, um, but it is expensive. So how how feasible do you think it is for this kind of greater rollout? In terms of expensive, it's expensive compared to what we've traditionally spent on cycling. So um, most of the country is spending, well, I mean, figures, it's hard to get an exact figure, but maybe like three or four pounds per head per year, which uh, compared to the spending you get in, say, Amsterdam, in um, parts of Europe where they're seriously investing in cycling, it would be more like 25 pounds per head. And many of those places already have a cycling infrastructure. (laughs) They're just improving it. We don't really have a cycling infrastructure. So I think spending you know 25 50 pounds per head per year in this country on cycling um, is what we need to do to make a difference and actually if you can compare it to the cost of road infrastructure it's much much cheaper and we often see for instance that um, the government is maybe investing 20 million in cycling and on the same web page you'll see that 50 million is being spent on one motorway junction so it, it, it is actually good value it's more than we've traditionally spent but it's good value and it will encourage just like those motorway junctions will encourage more driving it will encourage more walking and cycling and I think the other important point is that um, we've sh- the, the Mini Holland's programme has shown that it can work in suburban outer London with low densities. It's not, um, you know, it's not somewhere like Hackney, which is very distinct. And I think a lot of towns and cities um, in this country have relatively short distances. They're actually easier to do in many ways, certainly um, for, for key cycle routes. So in London, if you do a north-south and an east-west superhighway, it's great, but most of London is still untouched by that, whereas many... Um, I was looking at actually um, Hereford, you know, you've got a relatively small number of arterial routes coming into that city, you know, the amount of cycle track you need to build is much, much less. So some of these places, it wouldn't really be that complicated. And you can see where you need to build and you know what you need to build. It's a question of having the political will and the funding. So... Just, just let me continue this sort of Netherlands topic just for just a moment longer and, and going back into history, sort of where this emphasis comes from in the Netherlands about, you know, improving the cycling infrastructure and pouring so much money into it. Um, it kind of comes from this, um, so it, it was called Stop the Kindermord in Dutch, right? Stop the child murder, that there was just a huge amount of traffic fatalities in the 1970s, um, which caused this public outcry and uh, and led to this movement of saying, you know, we need to change our planning, basically, to ensure that, you know, all these children are, are not being killed on the road. Um, so I guess my question to you is, I don't notice any public outcry at the moment about, you know, the thousands of children being killed on public roads. Uh, how safe is cycling or walking in this country? Is that, I mean, is is that bit perhaps missing from pushing this higher up the policy agenda? 
I think there has been a focus on road deaths, cycling deaths in London, um, and that has been that has helped to change policy because it's made it very concrete. The the, the impact of not doing anything but telling people to cycle is that people will die on the roads because the infrastructure is not safe enough. Uh, I mean, I think in terms of children, we have such little, as child cycling has reached such low levels, you don't tend to get, I mean, you don't get children dying on the roads in London because children hardly cycle. So in a sense, you have to make that risk visible, um, which is a more challenging thing because people have stopped cycling because they're scared that it's dangerous. So I think... uh, I think it's it's kind of a, a difficult issue because within London um, as well, just to carry on with the risk theme, within London, um, the deaths tend to be often in central London. But one reason for that, or the main reason for that, is that there's simply a lot of cycling in central London. It is no safer in outer London boroughs. In fact, it's more dangerous. <laughs> but because you've got such low amounts of cycling there, it doesn't get the attention because it doesn't get the deaths. So I kind of feel like our planning, you know, the, the, the deaths are shocking and they are important, of course. But our planning needs to kind of go beyond that because it doesn't necessarily highlight the most dangerous places. Do you think there's an, uh, 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 an opportunity here to, to link cycling to sort of, uh, I mean, it's about, you know, think about London, especially now. So one thing that has moved up the policy agenda, uh, certainly in London, is um, air pollution, right? So a lot of people are worried about that now, and it's really sort of moving up uh, people's mindset right now with all these diesel cars. We had all the, you know, the diesel gate, etc. Do you think cycling can be linked to that idea of, you know, this is really a great way forward to reduce that? It's interesting because I've actually just um, done a qualitative paper looking at some narratives around driving and cycling. And one kind of interesting and slightly depressing thing is that people are aware of issues like air pollution and they are aware that it's a problem and they are aware that cars cause air pollution. But you will also get people saying that they don't want cycle tracks, um, cycle lanes and so on built because it will slow down the motor traffic and thereby cause more pollution. And you see this argument also for pedestrian crossings and bus lanes at times as well. So it's like there's a recognition that the problem exists, but not um, an appreciation that actually we need to get lots of people out of their cars and onto walking, cycling and public transport to fix this. And I think partly, I don't necessarily think the public are to blame for this. Um, I think we need more of a political steer because one of the problems is that people can't imagine that things will change. They imagine that the number of cars we've got on the road will always stay the same and that therefore, you know, all you can do is try and not slow them down so that they don't pollute more. And even in London, in London, we've seen a a really substantial mode shift away from the car, mainly towards uh, buses. So things have changed in London. Things have changed massively in the past 20 years, but people still don't really believe that change can happen. So we need political leadership. We need a narrative that says, yes, it is possible to have a really substantial reduction in car travel. But what we need to do is to take space away from cars and allocate it to walking, cycling and public transport. And then we will get that shift and then we'll get the reduction in pollution. But, you know, it takes it it basically takes people to be brave and to be honest. And yes, it, it does mean that for quite a few people, they will not be driving as much as they did before. It doesn't mean everybody will have to cycle everywhere. Some trips will still need cars. But when you look at the proportion of car trips that are short, that are not made carrying objects or, you know, that, that could actually be shifted, there's a massive proportion of car trips that could be shifted and that needs to happen and we need to enable it. Oh, you can carry loads of stuff on the bicycle. I used to remember, you know, I had, you know, I'd loaded up the bicycle with the shopping front and back and then you try and balance it on the way home. And carry but, an umbrella. Yeah, you cycle as well if it's <laughs> raining or weather. Yeah, or, or your children on the back, you know, at the front, child at the front and the back. Uh, you know, that, that was quite normal, actually, when I was young. 
It is true. And that will happen as we get a normal cycling culture. But I'm just kind of highlighting that a lot of trips are, car trips are people on their own in a car. That's it. And going a couple of miles. So, yeah. But I I agree. When we get a normal cycling culture, we will have people carrying sofas and fridges. (laughs) But it sounds like very much from what you're saying that actually the, the issue is around planning. And it's very much a kind of transport infrastructure situation that we, you know, if we just encourage more people to cycle as it is, and in fact, we might end up with more injuries because, as you say, the infrastructure is not there. It is still dangerous in a lot of places. And so the kind of first steps in policy are we need to um, have better planning and, be- and better infrastructure. But there's also an issue, I think, with the, the measuring of these um, traffic injuries. Um, I understand you've examined some data from like National Transport Survey and compared this to the official statistics and found that traffic injuries may be five times more likely to occur than officially reported, which seems like a crazy um, discrepancy, uh, which, taking that into account, it it would suggest that cycling is the highest per mile travelled injury risk, which is is pretty scary. So uh, is that accurate? And should we be just really pushing for greater infrastructure and and putting these schemes in place? Yeah, I mean... I think cycling is a lot more dangerous and walking too, a lot more dangerous than it should be. If you compare what you if you do a country comparison, you need to normalise by the amount of walking or cycling because, yeah, otherwise it's not completely unfair to compare us to the Netherlands where there's a lot more cycling. When you do that, you find that, say, in the Netherlands, it is um, two or three times safer per kilometre to walk or cycle. So clearly there are a lot of people being injured who shouldn't be injured, who are injured because our um, transport infrastructure our policy and so on is not up to scratch however we also have to remember that there are substantial benefits from getting more people walking and cycling that the public health benefits from the largely from reduction in physical inactivity but also around not causing air pollution not causing noise pollution and so on are really substantial so actually more cycling um, is is good for everyone more walking is good for everyone but policy needs to enable it policy needs to ensure that it is safer and that it feels safer but it's it's also important to recognize that walking and cycling are sort of safe modes for others that the dangerous modes we sometimes we see this the wrong way around really and I think Transport for London talking about a road danger reduction approach is really good because it puts the focus not on all oh, these people walking these people cycling there's they're, they're at such risk it's actually the risk is caused by the fact that you've got other people driving three ton motor vehicles vehicles and so on and that's where the risk comes from you know the people who die cycling in London um, a lot of them are killed by HGVs or sometimes by other motor vehicles you know they're not just falling off they are actually being killed by motor vehicles. Is there anything do you have any uh, I don't want to say tips here for for people but I mean I'm certainly very conscious that if I were to cycle I have cycled a little bit but mainly on sort of super cycle highways because I feel safe there and and as soon as it stops (laughs) I turn around and go back the other way um, you know, my concern is always sort of death by van, death by lorry, uh, if uh, if I cycle. Are there, is there anything in your research that suggests how we could minimise risk in London? Is it just a question of planning or are there also behavioural shifts that people can, can undertake? For me, the key is the planning and creating an environment where people don't feel um, unsafe, where people don't feel at risk. I mean, I, it, it just, it's, it, 
it seems to me it's completely unfair to be asking people to share space with these um, massive heavy goods vehicles where basically the the um, area often the dri- that the driver can't see in the mirror is literally where the cycle lane is and the fact that we allow these vehicles on our roads. Transport for London is pushing um, for um, lorries with where the drivers have better vision where they can see more around them like a like a driver of a bus can or or, or a refuse um, truck can and so on so these things can be changed it is really a question of changing the system changing the way that we plan changing the infrastructure changing the speeds and so on rather than about individuals because when you've got a safe cycling culture and you can sort of see it in the Netherlands by the way that people will cycle holding an umbrella holding a mobile phone or whatever you know they feel safe they don't feel like they have to cover themselves in helmets and high vis and so on and yeah places where we know that places where lots of people wear bike helmets um are actually um substantially more dangerous to cycle than the places where no one wears a bike helmet even though as an individual um a bike helmet might protect you in the event of certain types of crash or collision so something that is an individually protective measure potentially actually doesn't work at a societal level so it it is the solutions are a societal I think but the benefits will be massive because we know that those public health benefits are great and lots of benefits that we can't even measure so for just for me personally one of the benefits I get from cycling is that um, I can relax that I feel like like the cares of the day drain away a little bit it's my time it's time now and I'm not surrounded by other people like I would be on the bus or the tube so those kind of mental health benefits that we can't easily measure as well if we can enable a society where more people can walk or cycle safely and comfortably we'll be a happier society I think. So we've talked here uh, a little bit about some of the difficulties and you know some of the things that are still wrong with um, not just London but lots of our cities in terms of encouraging people to walk and to cycle. Um, but on a more positive note, um, things are better than they were um, a few years ago. We've got at least some of these schemes being rolled out. There seems to be quite a lot more awareness at least of the kind of issues with cycling and trying to make these positive changes uh, and also the the data that's available statistics on and, and mapping of where um, these collisions and crashes have occurred can then be used to kind of highlight okay here's where there's a dangerous blind spot or, or dangerous particular section of road and then do something about it so how much uh, better is it than uh, it has been in the past I mean, I I think it's one one thing that gives me a lot of hope is that there are um, cities outside of London that are now being really ambitious and looking to make change quickly. And I think that is really important because for ages, it's funny how quick the culture changes. So for ages, London, and it still still is to some extent, was seen as the place where you had to be particularly odd to want to cycle there. You know, you, people would say to me, you have to be so brave to cycle in London. And this would be people living in other parts of the country, which I know are no safer statistically than cycling in London. Um, and suddenly now I'm having people say to me, well, of course, cycling is relatively easy in London. <laughs> but, where you know, in in other parts of the country, of course, it's kind of naturally much harder. And it's funny how quickly those perceptions shift. And I think if we get, you know, Manchester, Sheffield, Liverpool and so on just jumping ahead, then that will create a virtuous circle of competition. What I worry about is that towns, smaller cities and towns that traditionally haven't invested in cycling will get left behind and will be like the third tier. They don't have the resources, the, the leadership, the transport planning capacity and so on. And they're just not able to make that jump. But as I mentioned, some of those places, you know, there are a lot of short trips. It really wouldn't be that difficult to make them much more walking and cycling friendly whereas some of the big cities are quite complex around like public transport interchanges there were some challenges and so on um, but one thing I just wanted to mention as another positive thing is around 
not just I think it's really important not just to measure what's currently happening because at the moment we've got two percent mode share for cycling you know um, we've got virtually no children cycling to school if we just look at what's currently happening whether it's where people are being injured or where people are cycling we've really not got a proper picture because disproportionately it is mammals and so on which is fine but it doesn't represent where what a mass cycling culture would look like and one of the projects that I'm involved in that's funded by the Department for Transport I think is really important for that because it basically does traditionally for years for cars we did predict and provide we were like we think there's going to be that much more car travel and it will be there and we will build something for it Um, and really this is trying to do similar for cycling trying to say okay if cycling grew um, then based on what Uh, trip characteristics distance and hilliness because you know people are not generally going to switch to cycle a 20 mile trip Um, where would that growth take place so the propensity to cycle tool effectively says in a future with more cycling this is how many cyclists you might have on this a road this is these are the neighborhoods where cycling would be particularly common and it allows authorities to look and say okay this a road is a priority for tracks this neighborhood is a priority for reducing motor traffic so that we can have children getting to school safely so I think it's also well, one thing that my research does is like I sometimes use the phrase making the invisible visible that the stuff that isn't happening and somehow we have to conceptualize and measure the stuff that isn't happening and that for me is a really interesting intellectual challenge that that's all you're talking about that is freely available it's freely available and open source propensity to cycle propensity to cycle tool yeah excellent I mean that sounds great and it's really important as you say that not only is there policy in place but there's a vision there's a kind of vision of how it could be in the future and then steps put in place to take us to that vision and to sell that vision to people that's a a really important example of kind of how we can influence and how you are able to influence policymakers. and i know that um in 2016 you were awarded a prize from one of the uk research councils for the impact of your work which recognized how barriers to cycling uh, and your research into them has produced fundamental shift in policy leading to increased investment in cycling infrastructure and a new approach uh, to increasing cycling participation throughout the UK. understand that originally London was only spending about 50p per person per year and that's up above like £10 per person per year, which is a huge impact and a real fantastic uh, story of a tangible evidence of how academic research can then impact on uh, policy change. So in a purely hypothetical uh, situation, so again, Franz and I take over the country, we're, we're running things these days, and uh, we decide that we're grateful for Chris Grayling for the work he's done in the Department of Transport, but um, we're going we're gonna to give him the boot, and we're going to bring in uh, Rachel Aldred to be in charge of, of transport policy, uh, and you can do whatever uh, you see fit. What's, what's the policy for the future? I mean, there would need to be a really fundamental rebalancing between modes. If we look at our transport spending, it's going disproportionately towards cars. And unsurprisingly, um, that people are making trips by car because that's what we're providing. That's what we're prioritising. It would be a shift in resources towards walking, cycling and public transport. It would be making those modes easier, safer, more comfortable, more accessible, cheaper where needed and so on. So it would really be, you know, it would be a case that, people would have to justify car-based investment. The walking, cycling and public transport would just happen. That would be the core business of Department for Transport. Instead of having people doing walking and cycling um, in part of Department for Transport, most people would be doing walking, cycling and public transport and there would be a corner of Department for Transport where there would be the car people and people would kind of maybe look at them a bit askance because what are they doing? You know, Walking, cycling and public transport are the main things that we look after here. And I would also try and ensure that MPs... um, 
um, and political leaders generally um, don't get around all the time by car, that they need to be cycling, they need to be walking, they need to be using public transport, because I think that's also part of the problem that we face, that if decision makers only see the world through a windscreen, that's what they will think about. Rachel Aldred, thank you very much for coming on. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. My name is Thomas Buscher. And I'm Matt Dixon. And you've been listening to Policy Matters. We'll be back with more soon.